So, Ruby, you um, have asked a very public and pointed question. Where does it hurt? Ruby, where does it hurt you? Well, I think in, in many ways my hurts are both universal and personal hurts. I think universal hurts of being born in a racist, misogynist, heterosexist, and ageist society, mm -hmm. and classist society, and, and bearing the marks of those society, bearing those marks in a world where each of those realities, each of those systems say that I, I have no value. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, that has, it has not wounded me in the sense that the wounds are overwhelmed, overwhelmed what I think are my survival tools, but I do think that I've been greatly marked by that. And on a personal level, I think that I was marked by being raped by the neighbor across the street when I was 16 years old. And I think that rather than creating in me a great deal of bitterness, it has shaped my understanding of the Me Too movement and some of my deepest critique of it as a movement, not for justice, but as a movement for retribution. I believe that it has caused me to really ask, what is the purpose of a movement? Is it to punish people, or is it to provide pathways for, or towards redemption where people can change their lives? And are people to be forever marked by deeds that they did? Do we ever say that people can grow and become brand new? So that, that, that really has really made me grapple with how is it that I look at people and what is the difference between accountability and retribution? That is really important. Ruby, can I, can I slow down a little bit around the, the connection between the personal narrative that happens inside the societal narrative? And I think about the name of our center is, is, is you know, it's personal spiritual and it's societal, right? Transformation, restoration, uh, for the story to be changed uh, both here in the individual but also in the collective. So can we talk a little bit about the, the list of the sins, the hegemony, the sexism, the racism, the heteronormativity, the, you know, classism. How do those, how did you being violated in the context of all of that other stuff? shape your sense of what can happen in terms of changing both levels, transforming both levels? Well, first of all, I think it's really important for us to understand that the, spirit, the, the social malformation and the spiritual perversions that we've just named are sins. And they are sins that not only uh, impact the person who's the recipient of those isms, but also the perpetrators of those isms. And in many ways, to be a part of the empire and to, and to be a part, to see our, the good life in the eyes of the empire requires us to commit soul suicide. Mm. And so the question is, in what ways have we committed so, suicide? I think that when I think of whiteness, 
requires us, the whole culture of whiteness requires each of us to commit soul suicide. For white people, it requires them to distance themselves from their ethnicity, from their authentic selves, mm -hmm. and to become something artificial and socially constructed called whiteness. And whiteness is without a culture of redemption. It's a culture, it's an over and against dominating, mm -hmm. death-driven culture. And so that in order to become that, you have to give up your authentic life-affirming self, which is found in your history, wherein lies the hope and the possibility of transformation. Yeah. And so for, our, for people of color who sign on to whiteness, it requires them also to step away from their history and to become the very people who they are, who have oppressed them. So I think that it's really important for us to understand that as elites or as white people, whiteness is idolatry. It, is God, it predicates itself on God envy. Mm -hmm. It's the guardians of whiteness want to be God. They want to be the originators of our sitting up and our getting down. They want to control the universe. They want to control creation. Right. They want to control life, and they want to control death. And so the question on the table this morning is, how do we get out of that death grip, grip that has us in the wilderness, and how do we find ourselves to fertile ground where we can each become brand new? And the great good news, the gospel news, is that None of us, as I said this morning, are entrapped in bad history. But that means, in, in effect, that we have to understand and be honest that this thing called whiteness, this thing called patriarchy, has wounded us on very deep levels. And it is not a privilege to die. It's not a privilege to commit suicide. The privilege is what God offers us, the ability to come out of the wilderness and to become new people, one with each other and one with God. Maybe when I was working on my uh, dissertation, I read an article called, White Means Never Having to Say You're Ethnic. <laughs> yeah. White means never having to say you're ethnic. And so anecdotally, we kind of know this, that whites came to America as Lithuanian, as German, as Swedish, as Irish, as Italian, as Spanish, and then they became white. The first ones to pass for white were Anglo-Saxon, and then everybody starts passing for white, stripping off their ethnicity, their juiciness, their joy, their culture there, and become white. This year is the first year I've heard my Jewish friends call themselves white. Yes, that was what, a post-civil rights yeah. Post-civil rights. So, if you were teaching white people how to re-embrace their culture, their ethnicity, their Germanness, their stuff, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the process? It strikes me, 
as really weird for a Jewish person to want to claim a bloody history of lynching, castration, vilification, enslavement that does not belong to them. Isn't that weird? It is. That you want to claim Sorry, that kind of history, friends. take on that, 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 that space that is not a space that you've created, simply for this thing called the ability to stand over and against other people based on skin color, to trade one's humanity. And I think that when we look at this whole question of ethnicity, the danger, see, the da this, is, this is where we stand on common ground with each other. Mm -hmm. Whether you're an Irish person, whether you're an Italian person, whether you are a Jewish person who came to this country, or whether or not you were an African-American person who were forcibly brought to this country in chains. We all had a common beginning, and that common beginning was that we were all strangers at the gate of empire. That's our common standing ground. Yeah. And when we walk away from that ethnic history, we erase that thing which is common in all of our experiences. And it strikes me very odd that white people carry with them a great shame. They have to pretend that they were born, that they've always been middle class, that they've always had certain kinds of material benefits. There's a great shame of admitting that you started out poor, without economically dispossessed. There's a shame in not, because if, if, if you admit that, then that means that something about you is not white. Because right. all white people were born perfect with all of these things. And so I, I think that it's really important for us to really look at this whole stripping away, this existential stripping away yes. of one's history and one's ethnicity. And when you do that, it creates in you an ingratitude to God. Because how do you celebrate where God has brought you when you detach yourself from your history? because theology is inextricably bound into history. You can't talk about God without history without talking about God's place in your history. Mm -hmm. And so that creates an idolatry where you begin to believe that the guardians who strip you of your ethnicity is really the, 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 the omnipotent being right. to whom you should bow down and worship. And the same thing happens in my community. With, with black elites who get involved in a transactional uh, movement that, wants, that does not want to change the heart of society, but simply want a, a seat at a corrupt table. I don't want to name drop, but I want to drop another name. Um, Tandeka. Do, do you guys know Tandeka? Yeah. Uh, Tandeka is a Unitarian Universalist um, minister, I guess, who then went and got a PhD, who wrote a book called Becoming White. Becoming white. Love, can you pull your scooter up just a little bit? You, yes, love, yeah. Like Hi, just over Nestra. here. Hi. 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 Okay, yeah, just so, just so Shardell, you're great. Just so Shardell could still see behind you. You're great. You're good now. That's great. Thank you, honey. Yeah, so I'm becoming white. So, you know, this whole, you know, she, she says white people have shame, Ruby, what you're saying, when they're not white enough. And you're not white enough, you're not white enough if you don't buy into the American dream, which Ruby, you're calling a god. You're not white enough if you 
have black relations, black people in your world. You're not white enough if you don't own the kind of manifest destiny uh, chosenness narrative is, are some of the things she's saying. And the white children get socialized into whiteness in ways that are crippling to them. And often at a really young age where they don't have a choice about how to stand outside of it, people are nodding, right? And then when you get older and you try to push back, it, it's a whole different kind of project. Um, what's the corollary of that? Is there a corollary of that in our people, Ruby? Are we, are we ever not black enough? Well, I, I think that, see, it seems to me that the whole conversation of being black enough is a response to the very accommodation right. to empire, empirism. That's right. And I think when people were raising that question, they were really critiquing what it meant to take on the accoutrements of empire mm -hmm. and what did it mean to be looked down upon mm -hmm. because you did not have those accoutrements. And so I think it was really all that has been greatly misunderstood. I think basically it came out of a hurt place mm -hmm. where people felt that they were being judged because they were not white enough and, mm -hmm. and because they uh, were coming from an environment where they did not have access mm -hmm. to certain uh, uh, benefits of empire. So I, I do think that that's a valid question for African Americans and for all people of color to ask what does it mean to be a person of color mm -hmm. in a white supremacist world? Right, right. And what is it that we negotiate and what is it that we hold on to? And I think that William E. Du Bois in the souls of black folk, which really people think is a history, but it's really a spiritual reflection yep. on the consciousness of black people, of the souls of black people, which he argues is shaped both by our Africanness, uh, which is our spiritual selves, right. as well as our Americanness, which is our material selves. Yeah. And so it is that these forces, these parts of ourselves are Sim exist simultaneously, right. and that we must navigate these forces at the same time. And, and I think mm -hmm. that that is the same question with women who yeah. say that they want to, as, we, as, as I pointed out some time ago, who say that they want to break through the glass ceiling. That's wanting to be a white man. There's no, I would not want to break the glass ceiling. As I've said, I want to tear down the whole house and rebuild it. And so the question is, even, even women, even women want to be white men. And so the question is, and that happens when you see movement and change as transactional uh, movements rather than transcendental movements that change the very heart of the society that we live in today, yeah. that we are part of. Ruby, when you talk about history and uh, theology being inseparable, I, I always hear that as you saying, almost like, what story are we living? You know, the, this American, yeah. the history of America is a certain kind of story, but the theology, the theological narrative for all of us is a different kind of history. Where is God in that? How has God um, driven us into the wilderness or pulled us out of the wilderness or shaped us in the wilderness? And, and it, it's, it starts feeling to me, Ruby, like we're talking about what are our values. 
what are the values really that shape our identity? So Du Bois is talking about Tunis, right? Um, the, the, Tunis is a gift African-American people have. Spiritual, worldly, black, white, African and American, and that, they, and that this gift of Tunis, double consciousness, he calls it, is a gift. And the people on the border, I'm going to move us into a little Latino talk, they talk about mestizaje in the same way that there is a, there's something about being Anglo and Latino or something about being mixed, mestizaje, that makes us like Jesus. And that is a, that is a rich, multiracial, multiethnic consciousness. Ruby, just think about that for a second with us. Is there a border consciousness? Only if you think that the center of the world is that the that the that the center is the is the place that we all want to be. Hmm. I certainly think we live in a society of walls, mm -hmm. and I prefer to think of corner theology, where we can see many different places at one time, mm -hmm. where we can stand in one space but see up four different directions at one time, rather than borders. Because I think the problem that I have with border is that it re-emphasizes the whole false notion of marginalization as an absolute term for describing who people are. Mm -hmm. Because I might be marginal in the empire, but I'm no way marginal in my community. Right. I'm no way marginal in the work that I do. And so that we have to speak with simultaneous tones that do not confine us to the, to the monolithic definitions that we are trying very hard to get out of. So I, you might be on the, on the border in society, but you're essential in your community. And, and so I think yeah. that we are called That's upon good. to develop an, a simultaneous language to speak in tongues for the 21st century that, that really raises us. You, how do people move towards liberation when you're using language that dehumanize them, mm -hmm. like marginalization, like deprived, like, I mean, like can we, yes, can, <laughs> we, can we speak a new language that, 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 that re reflects our spiritual beliefs, that reflects the fact that we believe that in the kingdom of God, we're all essential. Can we speak that kind of language as people who say that we are part of a faith community? Because in speaking the empire language, we end up reproducing the very empire systems that we are trying to contest. For example, I get so upset when I hear people say detention centers. Because that's a problematic word, because first of all, children and people who've done things wrong are held in detention. And detention is a euphemistic expression in my way of thinking for sites of terror, yeah. where people are held in captivity, where they are used as property to fuel an ec a, a white economy, where they privatized, a privatized white economy. So why, when we say detention centers, we distance ourselves from the meaning of the captivity and the suffering that people are enduring. And not only that, we provide, we sanitize the assaults of the empire against these, against these people. And so that, and another thing, that when we say immigrants, 
That is unethical and morally bankrupt because the war is not on all immigrants. The war is on immigrants of color. No, we're not in a post-racial society. So we must be very clear that we are talking about immigrants of children. When we talk about children being in cages, no, we're not talking about all children being in cages. We're talking about black and brown children being put in cages. And so that it is unethical and is spiritually perverse to diminish it, to diminish the nature of people's suffering so that people can pretend that we live in a world that doesn't exist. Amen. Barbara Christian. Um, Another, just another name to drop, because we're going to keep using Ruby's talk so we can keep learning. But Barbara Christian wrote a really beautiful article yes. about the simultaneity of discourse, right? Saying that yes. womenist writers, black female writers, are almost always speaking in tongues, right? Yes. One tongue to white women, one tongue to black women, one tongue to black men, one tongue to mujeristas. So this, again, back to double consciousness from Du Bois, saying that's a gift of what it means to be in and out, accepted, rejected. We develop this ability to be two-sided. Virgilio Elizondo calls this thing on the frontier, on the border, mestizaje, but saying the same thing. Being in and out, you develop simultaneously, simultaneity of discourse. You know how to speak in tongues. You know how to code switch. All the black people in the room know how to code switch, right? Do all the Latin, all the black people in the room know how to code switch? This talk at home, this talk at work. Do all the Latino people in the room know how to code switch? Right? Do the white people in the room know how to code switch? If you're a little LGBTQ people, you know, you know how, how to code, code switch. switch right? If you're a woman, you know how you know to code, code switch. switch. Right? How can we teach people? who don't know, who don't understand themselves as people who need that capacity, Ruby. Can we teach that? Only if we have done the work that we need to do for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I, I, I believe that even those of us who step out in the front line do our work with empire tongues and speak the language of empire and believe in many ways that our education and our status in life make us leaders automatically. And I, be, and I disagree with that, because mm -hmm. I believe that we have to really look at w things like leadership. What is an authentic leader? And I believe that an authentic leader is not one who's been verified by the empire, but who has been anointed by the people. Amen. And that authentic leaders are called up out of the body of the people because they, have, they share a common vision, and they share a common language, and they share a common destination. Now, they might disagree on what highways you take to get to that destination, but they have a common destination. For example, African-Americans and Latinos have often disagreed among our group about how to get to the destination, but we've always agreed that the destination is freedom. Amen. And so that authentic leaders must be able to speak, not in the empire tongue, but in the tongues of the people. Mm -hmm. And you cannot facilitate the process in a foreign language. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and so I deeply question 
our assumptions at leaders of self-made in college classrooms. Hmm. And I deeply question our assumption that, that one has to be, have an education, has to be, well, we all have education, but we have to have a certain amount of schooling in order to be leaders. Because in doing that, you're perpetuating empireism. Yeah. Right. And we know that leadership, authentic leadership, rises from the bottom to shape the middle, to change the top. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this is what I was trying to say this morning, that we must divorce ourselves of our presumptions about who we are and who people, and who people are. I am not a leader in the sense that we think of leaders. I am the product of a society of a group of people who kept tilling generations in the arid soil of Southern apartheid. They kept believing in the day of the Jubilee and they kept tilling generations when there was no evidence that their work would ever bear fruit. But they were faithful and hopeful people, so they kept on tilling. And so to talk about me as, something, as being a cult, an icon, really diminishes the source of my power and the context from which I do my work. And I know that when people say that, oh, Ruby, you're a civil rights, I know that they mean to respect me, but only God is an icon. Amen. And any leader who wants you to call them an icon, may I give you some advice? Run to the nearest door because <laughs> because they want you to adore them in the same way that the empire wants you to adore them. Each of you have the light of freedom inside of you. Amen. You have the light of power inside of you. And so our work is to work together to help each of us shine our lights as we shine our own lights. And so I think that our understanding of movement must change to understand that the people, without the, if, if Martin Luther King had called a demonstration and, no, and the people didn't show up, and the people were not a part of that, he'd just be another black leader calling for a demonstration. Without the people, there would not have been a Martin Luther King. I'm, I'm really going on and on about this because I think in the 21st century, we must move away from cultish leaders to people-centered leaders. Amen. And this is why we have a Donald Trump, because white supremacy is a cult around whiteness, and we imitate that cultness into leaders and make individuals stand above their communities. Mm -hmm. And as long as we have those kind of cultish leaders, we'll always be in the grip of empire. Amen. I think collecting stories, Ruby, um, when it's late at night and I should be writing and I'm procrastinating, <laughs> and I'm looking at Twitter. Do yeah, you we, saw, we saw you on Twitter telling people to make you get up <laughs> from procrastinating. Talk, make me stop procrastinating so. on the Twitter. But, you know, really collect, just really fascinated by the stories of the indigenous people, meaning really just on the ground people, like a young woman who filmed a white woman harassing um, what seemed to be an immigrant mom asking for money for her baby. Did y'all see that? Yes, I saw right? that. So she's standing outside, and, and then, the, then the woman who's filming, uh, maybe she's Latina, I don't know, but she's bravely, boldly saying, you know, get out of your face. Um, 
Yesterday, last night, it was uh, supposedly ICE agents arresting a supposed immigrant man, illegal man, um, no identification, plain clothes, horrifying. Um, and, the, and, the, mm -hmm. and the regular citizens in the elevator saying, you're not taking him without a fight. How can we find our moral courage, each of us, Ruby, to shine the light of freedom you said we each have? What's our path? Well, I think that that's a very complicated question because in order to locate the path, we must also locate who we are. Mm -hmm. And within that context, we are both predators and victims. Mm -hmm. We are both predators and victims at the same time. And so that we must begin to identify the ways in which we are targets of oppression and the ways in which we perpetuate oppression. Mm -hmm. And we must also be willing to speak the truth about what it means to be a predator and a victim at the same time. For example, I also get annoyed when people say women this and women that, because that's a dishonest statement. Mm -hmm. Although we might share universal spaces, all women do not lead the same life. That's right. and, so, and, and so when you globalize women like that, you really cover up the ways in which women have oppressed other women. Mm -hmm. you make, you, you, and then you call upon women who've been oppressed to deny their experience. Yeah. It's a tyranny, it's a kind of tyranny of power where you rip out my tongue so that you can feel good about yourself and that I'm not, for example, in the Me Too story, I'm not permitted to tell my story because I, am seen, I will be seen as being anti-woman. But my story is quite this, that in the Southern jail, during the Southern Freedom Movement, Fannie Lou Hamer, Anel Ponder and 17-year-old June Johnson were held in solitude, solitary and captivity by white male jailers who violated their bodies, beat Mrs. Hamer on her private parts, ripped off June Johnson's clothes, exposed her naked body, degraded her body and beat her so badly until her right eye popped out. Anel Ponder, who was also in that jail, was also beaten severely, her body degraded and invaded. And these men who committed these atrocities against Anel Ponder, Fenelou Hamer, and June Johnson were the same men who would have lynched a black man for looking at a white woman. Mm -hmm. And the white women in the South, when the story got out about the brutal beating of Fannie Lou Hamer, they said that she deserved to be beaten because she stepped outside of her place. And so that me too, must women must realize as we talk about this very, it's a complicated history. Yeah. In the South, it's a history of white women falsely accusing black men of rape. If you go to the Legacy Museum and see the hundreds of bottles uh, uh, that carry the saw where black men were raped, lynched, part of that lynching came about because white women falsely said that they were raped by, white, by black men. Right. And so it's a very complicated story. And black men in the Southern environment were victims of sexual crimes yes. because they were castrated. Right. 
and so that the history is a very complicated one. So I must be permitted as a black woman to say that I come from a history where just because a woman says she's raped doesn't mean that it's true. And, and I cannot be then accused of woman-hating, because then what you're asking me to do is to walk away from what I know to be the history. Right. And so that we must develop the ability. That's why it's really important not to get into retribution, because if black people were to build movements on retribution, there wouldn't be a white person standing. And so that we must, it just doesn't make, so we must, and so I say to white women who are doing this Me Too movement, you must not imitate mob justice. Amen. You must not, your desire must not be to bring white men down, but to lift them up so that they are able to, to provide pathways of redemption so that they can live into their highest selves. In the same way that when I look at a white person, I don't see an enemy, I see a possibility. Amen. I see a neighbor. I see someone, a companion. And so that that anger, it bothers me because that anger is so much like white anger yeah. that has been a problem in my history with white people. And so that I must be able to say that to white women without them accusing me of mansplaining. And they have to be honest enough to admit that they were responsible for black men being castrated in the South. Yeah. Emmett Till, the woman who accused him of making a pass at her, is still alive and has admitted that she lied. But Emmett Till's 12-year-old body has been castrated and broken apart, and he's dead, and he didn't have a chance to have a life. So these stories are very complicated. So my, 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 my request to you is that when we tell stories, let's deal with the complexities. Amen even when we don't look good in the story. Hmm. That's really powerful, Ruby. The Do y'all agree with that or what? Are y'all yeah. mad with me? <laughs> you know, we, we look at Roy Moore and we thought he was an aberration, but another part of the Southern culture that I came from, all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, is a culture of pedophilia where white men had their way with young black girls and other women were complicit in that. So we've got very complex, and unless we begin to tell the truth about these complicated stories without shame, but always with the optimism to know that we're not entrapped by our histories, that we can become new people. And unless we do this, we will become as crazed and as guilty of spiritual schizophrenia as Donald Trump is. Amen. Maybe when you and I talk about revolutionary love, you say, what's revolutionary about love is that we can see something about the other yes. that they can't see about themselves. The good in others We can see the good in others that they can't themselves. see. Can you say a little more about that? Yes, I, I think that love opens us up to a larger vision, not only of who we are, but who other people are. And it, 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 it does not, make us start the conversation with anti. For example, when we talk about doing racial justice work, we say anti-racism. If you start your work out with the negative, then what you create will be negative. What about saying that we're doing work for racial justice? That creates a whole, because it, 
when you build over and against movements, you're also not being able to see, you're automatically creating a movement where you're going to dismiss someone and not be able to see the potential in them. And I believe that each of us are born with the consciousness of God in us. And that consciousness of God in us is good. And so this is what movements do. They take us back to that consciousness of God, or they strengthen the consciousness of God in each of us. So when I do movement building, I'm not starting from that which is bad. I'm starting from that which is possible to change that which needs to be changed. And that to me is love. And love starts with a clean heart. Clean and pure heart of love. That and love is not warm and fuzzy. Yeah. And just because I believe in agape, that doesn't mean that you are my beloved. Right. Because whether or not you are my beloved has a lot to do with how you act in the world. Mm -hmm. And love is an action verb. Mm -hmm. It's not sitting next to me in a seat. It's not standing up. It's not, oh, you know what, I have to say this. It's not just holding my hands, right? Because it's about how you treat me in the world. How do you act, how do you engage with other people in the world? Do you say that you don't want to be, do I say that I don't want to be a black elite, but I act like a black elite? How do I conduct myself? Do I push other people down so that I can feel large? Do I need to have, we'll have the best seats in the house? Do I need for to push down somebody else's light so that my light can shine? Love means that you have the capacity to stand to, with someone eye to eye and chest to chest and become one with each other. And that's what love is. It's not all this syrupy proclamation and, and, warm, and, and warm fuzzy feeling. It's hard work to love is hard. To love, to, to love is hard. The temptation to hate is great. The temptation to vilify and demonize is great. It's a hard struggle. I, I deal with it every day because sometimes I get so mad with Donald Trump that I want to come to the television and kill him. But, you know, and, and I want to say, and I want to dehumanize him. I want to call him all kind of vile and vulgar names, right? But I realize that hate speech also diminishes me. Mm -hmm. And so I have to struggle with that. And I have to struggle to find something in him to love because I think everything in him is corrupt. But if I believe in the consciousness of God in all of us, the question is, what is it that's good in Donald Trump? I'm gonna touch you so we don't hear your earrings. What is good in Donald Trump? Do you, do you think that there's anything good in Donald Trump? Isn't it hard to find something good? <laughs> Is that the spiritual challenge of our generation? That's, that's exactly what it is. Let's write that book. How will we find something good in Donald Trump? I'm fascinated with that, Ruby. Um, you, you started off our talk with a very personal story, and you know mine. I'm not going to name all the stuff because right. people might be watching. But somebody I love and trust violated me when I was a child, and it's a person in my family. And I, I think I spent the better part of my life making that person the devil. And, and on the other side of that, like the angel. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like totally, in order for that to have happened to me, you must just be 
the devil, horrible. And what that did for me and my life is everything that about me that's like that person, then I didn't love that about myself, right? I just, like all of it's on the column of this sucks, this is evil, this is wrong. And somewhere in the, like my 40s when I decided it was really important to reconcile, this is my dad, it's really important to really love him because I want to love him, then I had to really look for the thing in him that's, in, that's just inestimably lovable. It's just infinitely lovable. Yeah. He's just a big squishy heart guy, you know, who makes mistakes. And when I was able to love him like that, then I was able to love me like that. And that was the beginning of something, Ruby. Yes. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. It, it that's was the different. beginning of a spiritual and social maturity. Right. Because the irony of it is, is that we spend our whole life, lives, our whole adult lives, reliving our childhood pain. Right. right. Without realizing that the grace of God gives us adulthood because we're finally in charge of our lives. And those things that happened to us that we had no control over, we've now got the power to fix right. and to transcend. But we don't do that. We, we spend, I mean, I know it took me a long time to understand that I had, my sister never got it, but I got it. You know, that, that I can't change, I couldn't change what my, I thought my mother did wrong. Mm -hmm. But right. what I did have the power to do as an adult was to make, to do what I thought was right by me. That's right. And so I think that when you do that, you no longer carry that other person inside of you. You become yourself. You become oh. yourself. Ruby, that's right. And honestly, I'm a pastor. I'm a professional Christian, I always say. I've been a Christian since I was in my mother's womb. But I don't think I was being a Christian until I forgave my father. I mean, I just wasn't really being a Christian until I forgave my father. I wasn't being a woman until I forgave my father. And, and that doesn't mean that it was okay. That's right. right? Say That's that. Not, I'm really got to say that. Like, you got to say that. It doesn't mean it was okay. It doesn't mean I pretended like it was okay. It doesn't mean in the conversations with him I act like it's okay. When he tries to scoot into the but I and right. explaining and what, hell to the no. Right. That's not what's happening. That doesn't work. That doesn't help. What helps, what matters is you just own, you effed up. That's what works for me. And don't and, gaslight me. And don't don't tell me that it didn't happen. Because it did. Do not gaslight exactly, exactly, me. Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, if I'm going to forgive you, right. then it's really important for you not to, to, first of all, violate me and then turn around and gaslight me. Because then you're re-traumatizing. Right. And I, and I wanted to just bring that up again because you were courageous and I wanted to match you. But I think it's also really an important thing about all of the stuff that we're needing to look at right now. Like when we're little people and someone hurts you, that the wound of that, the narcissistic wound of that, narcissism, I'm talking about the narcissistic wound, the self wound of that is indescribable. And you could carry that your whole life and that could be your identity, is that. Or you work on how you Ruby, make the right choices, love the right way, forgive, move for your own self, for your own personhood. And I think this connects somehow to Trump, to white supremacists, 
To gay bashers, I do not mean we should be in harmful relationships, and I do not mean we should accept people treating us like crap. I do mean something happens for us inside us when we decide to take charge of our own heart, that we can redeem our own souls, and the lesson in that I think helps us to be in the redemption business with each other. Ruby, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. It is the crux of what it means to be in process, to move from one position in life to the next. Mm -hmm. And I also think that as we're talking about this business of wounds, this is where the tender heart comes in. I don't care how powerful we are, and I don't care what we possess. None of us have escaped this journey without wounds. And, and so that when we are able to touch other person's wounds, other people's wounds, as deeply as we are able to touch our own, then I think that we will be in a real movement. I, I think that, that, and I'm not saying you should not be angry at assaults or violation, but it should be redemptive anger, not non-redemptive anger. And so that redemptive anger moves us to change, moves us to try to a higher level of consciousness, and where we began to understand that despite all of what our parents might have done to us, they too have a story. And what is their story? Yeah. And, that's that, and so stories are very important. I, my mother had a story. Her story, let me just say this, part of what I think I've had to grapple with with black women is that although they knew that this guy was a serial rapist, a serial violator, all of the black women in my community kept letting him come into their homes. So I've had to grapple with why is it that black women have sometimes loved black men more than they've loved themselves and their daughters? What is that? And I think it goes all the way back I think it goes all the way back to what it meant to be a black man up against a white patriarchy who ripped you apart and castrated you and violated you and where black men were considered beasts and black women got into the habit of protecting black men. And Toni Morrison exposes that dilemma in Beloved when the man says to Beloved, when Beloved says that she was raped And the man says, I know. And Beloved says, what? You knew and you didn't kill him? And so that black women have had to live with both being the victim and the protector. And and I've had to grapple with what, and so that that created in, in our community a certain kind of immorality where black girls were not safe around predatory black men. And so that's the history that we have to grapple with in this Me Too moment, that, black, that our hands are not clean as a black community, that we too have emulated the worst of sexual predatory behavior uh, of society. Our stories are very complicated. They're not easy, but always, even when we don't look good in the story, we must tell the truth, because when we don't tell the truth, we're hurting somebody else who lived the truth that we refuse to tell. Amen. With that, no matter what, how we are in that story, we must tell the truth. With that, how about a few questions? Yes. 
There's mics here Is and here. Is my friend out there? <laughs> you have a question left? Come on, y'all. Come on. Questions, questions. And guys, let's ask a question. Don't be timid, ask a question. Even if you think I'll disagree. Because you might. <laughs> I'll jump in. Hi, I'm Barbara. Hi, so Barbara. lovely to hear you today, Ruby. Um, my question is, I guess, sort of complicated and maybe a little off the, well, it, it is what it is. Um, I am a practicing Buddhist. Yeah. Um, I believe I carry a piece of Buddha within me, and it is, um, sorry, I get very emotional. It is my own limitless potential. I also feel that I'm living in a world where I'm being constantly bombarded. So I feel that when a child is locked up, that I am being harmed. When, um, when our administration does stuff to, to take regulations away that were put in place for the environment, I am being harmed. And I, I could go on and on and on. There are so many actions that end up in a way telling me that my, my limitless potential is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and I feel that our actions, even as a white woman of means living in New York, um, that I am powerless in a way. And we sit here in this church and we're talking about our spirit and how, how important it is to build that spirit, to really reconnect with that limitless potential, whether you believe it's God, Buddha, whatever. Um, but the world out there, the world outside these four walls, doesn't all have that same spiritual ground to walk on. So my question is really, how do we bring more people in on a spirit, in a spiritual movement. Not necessarily a political movement or a racial justice movement, but really a spiritual love movement. I've been to the Revolutionary Love Conferences, so um, I see those things at work, but how do you see us bringing more people in to that movement? Let me paraphrase the question. How is it that we gather up spaces together where we build those kind of movements, where everyone has agency and no one is the a, is a giver and other people are the receivers. And I think that the way that we do that is to understand that spaces that we have built in this society that pass for movements are really transactional spaces. And so the question is, how do we recognize the universality in all of us, the God consciousness in all of us. And how do we understand that religion, first and foremost, raises our consciousness? It is not about giving us access to jobs or, or giving us access to power or the material good life. And so how is it that we began to set forth a praxis that predicates itself on action, analysis, and spiritual reflection? And how is it that we began to speak to each other in a common tongue that recognizes that although we bring particular experiences to the conversation, that we're all part of one universal thread of humanity and part of one universal God. And that 
no matter if you're a Buddhist, if you're a Muslim, if you're a Christian, that our common denominator is that we are part of a movement of consciousness. Yeah. I would... and, and that we're not trying to see, because when I say, look, if we fix our consciousness, we'll have economic yeah. equality. But as long as we have a false and imperial consciousness, we'll always have economic equality. So I'm just suggesting that we begin to reshape how we have the conversation and what it is that we, what is the journey that we are wanting to be a part of and the journey that we're asking people to be a part of with us. I think that's, I, I agree, and I would want to add, maybe I misunderstood your framing, but I want to add, all of it is spiritual work. So the, the inner journey, the unlimited potential bursting out, the fixing of the race, all of it's spiritual. And I think the, the world out there wants us to act like this part's spirit and this part's world. But it's all spiritual, I think. Excellent, right? excellent. Yeah. Yes. Thank and you, I Mark. also think that you must hear me there's nothing written by God that requires us to turn over our power to other people. Amen. So the question is, why do we turn over our power to other people? Why do we turn over our power to the gardens of society? Why do we go to them in blind obedience? Because the people who wrote by... the Bible pretended that they had to give their power over to God too, Ruby, right? So if you think you have to give your power over to God, then you also think you have to give your power over to God's agents. And I just think that that's sort of fake, that's fake news. Well, I think that, but I, I think that the, another problem comes about when God is made in the image of human exactly. beings. Exactly, exactly. And I think that once you make God in the image of human beings, yeah. it becomes very easy to bow down and worship other excellent. human beings. Excellent, excellent. Are you ready? Yeah, I'd like to slightly go back to the beginning of what you were talking about because What's I was name? beautiful. Yes, could you speak a little louder? Oh. Thank yeah. you. Um, I was very struck by earlier in your talk. I mean, I love hearing everything about it and it's deepening as we go along. But you were talking about um, how in order to get away from empire, we have to kind of tear down the house. We don't have to contribute to it. But I was thinking about so many women and so many people of color have stepped up for election this cycle. It's almost like a huge surge of people power against the kind of entrenched government yes, power. I don't know what you're saying. You're how, how do you feel about that? Do you feel that this is a positive change, that people are coming more from the communities and stepping up to try and take positions in government? Or do you think that that's just a fool's errand, that it's, it's like supporting empire instead yeah. of undermining it? Or do you think it's undermining it from within? Are you hopeful about new candidates? Beth, I'm gonna paraphrase your question for Ruby. So, yeah. so you, Beth is saying, you're, you're saying we gotta step out of empire, step away from empire eyes. At the same time, women, people of color are getting into government, they're becoming a part of the empire, so to speak. Do you think that's good? Are they being disruptive from inside when that happens? How do you feel and where, where's your hope? Well, first of all, one can live in the world without 
signing on to the empire. They're not synonymous. Right. Number and, and I believe that of course I believe that it's important it is important in a democracy to participate in democracy. But where I take issue is is that change doesn't happen in the seat of the government and the most powerful seats in this country. Right. That change happens from the outside that pushes it from pushes the inside. And once you get inside the seats of power, and once we turn over our power to people in positions of power, we become weak while they become stronger. And so that I believe that, that we, must, uh, we must focus on building strong people. Strong people have strong leaders. Weak people have weak leaders. And I, and I do not believe that if, if politici politicians will never change, politicians are not change makers, they are deal breakers and deal makers. They're not people to change our lives. So we've got to be very clear about that and not be romantic and think that politicians are going to somehow change our lives when they have the best perks and the best seats in the house. I mean, that's a little naive, but we can affect policy change. But that doesn't mean that, that by doing politics, we're going to have a trans transcendental movement. We can have a transactional movement, but it will never be transcendental as long as the table remains set with the same plates and the same dishes, only bringing in new guests to sit at the table. Amen. Can you all agree with that? So why is it that we do transactional movements? Why is it that in our most radical moments we imagine freedom to be the right to live like the empire? Why is it that we do that? Why is it that our vision of freedom replicates what we think is the highest good as reflected by the empire materialism and power? What's up with that in us? What's up with that? You're brainwashed. Can, is it in any way possible? What do y'all think? Do we have any spiritual tools that we have developed that can help us counter that brainwashing? And if so, what are those spiritual tools? Art. Art, yes. Prayer. Connecting what? Connecting our history. Connecting our histories. Film. Yes. The arts. Prayer. See, one of the things that is, is very interesting to me that our identities are so inextricably bound into the identity of, of whiteness, that we believe that without that we are nobody. And that then believes that we, that, that means that we do not believe in God, that we believe that the empire has the right to make us who we are. And that without the, the, that identity, then we're stripped bare and powerless. I don't believe that we're powerless. I believe that, see, the empire knows that we're so powerful that they have to create all these restrictions and barriers to contain our power. If you thought people were inferior and they were naturally your inferior, inferiors, you wouldn't have to create laws to hold them down. They would naturally stay at the bottom. So the mere fact that the empire has to create laws to hold people of color, women and LGBTQ people down, it says that they know that we are powerful and that they are the ones who feel inferior. They're so inferior, they're so inferior that they have to constantly live in a state of fear and anxiety 
that somebody is going to overpower them when you're really not wanting to overpower them. You just want to live with them. And so the question is why. The other thing that strikes me is very interesting is very that white unity. Why is it, y'all, that white unity is always predicated on the enemy within and the enemy without? Whereas people of color enemy is predicated on struggle and community and building community, not looking for the enemy. When white people are called to unify, it's always around a common enemy. Enemy. Why is that, you think? How does that feel to constantly be in, af afraid that somebody is going to get what you have? I'm not being facetious. I really want us to grapple with that, and I'm not being disrespectful. I'm really wanting us to see the angst that whiteness creates in all of us, to constantly be in a fighting defensive position, thinking never being able to live in the world as full and free people. Although we constantly talk about being free, we are constantly contained in small spaces where we are not allowed to flex our, our spiritual or social muscles or even our creativity. And what does it mean? So one of the greatest angst of our day is, is the angst of smallness, is the angst of loneliness. And I went to a, a wild goose where Jack and I were, and I was horrified. How many of you have heard of silent discos? <laughs> silent discos. Don't raise your hand. Put your hand again. I was horrified. People bring their little earphones and their own music, and they dance by themselves. Never touching, never being in rhythm, never doing call and response. And they think that's radical. And I think that's an acceleration of individualism. It's something out of a 2054 novel. It's a nightmare. And it's, there's nothing radical about that. It's perverse. It totally <laughs> destroys the meaning of what it means to dance, what it means to, to be in rhythm with one another, what it means to harmonize. It's absolutely an aberration that comes out of individualism. And it I comes out of, on that. It comes out of a technocracy. Yeah. Oh who my can God. Touch, who, who can you touch if you're dancing by yourself? Anyway, Danita's question, last question. Oh, too, too quick. Can you say them both, Danita? Danita, me, me first? Yes, okay. my love. <laughs> um, in my heart. In your heart. In my heart. In your heart. I truly would like to find something to care about some of the people who are very vocal these days. But I really struggle with that, and I'm admitting that. And I feel an urgency that we've got 94 days to make a movement shift politically. I think I'm struggling with how do we balance the political movements and making change as well as our own spiritual change and being able to give that love that we've talked about to the people, you know, who are just tearing us down piece by piece. I don't mean to to stamp out anyone's optimism. But change is not going to come with an election. Change is hard work. It, the, the things that we are fighting against and for, I'm sorry, the things that we are fighting for are not things that were changed overnight. 
Change is dynamic, it is progressive. And if you don't understand that change is dynamic and progressive, when you do an action and you don't get the change that you want, then you're not able to celebrate the mere fact that you did an action is a victory. You, it, it, and so that we, we began with small victories to get us to the larger victories. And we live in a society of instant gratification. If it doesn't happen then, if it doesn't happen now, then it means nothing. And I'm afraid that we're gonna, because of this, we're going to get very disillusioned when the instant magic change doesn't happen because we elect Democrats. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm saying we need to vote, but please understand that the change is a, is a, is a process, is a movement, is hard work. It's not instant. There are no big daddies who are gonna, or big mamas who are gonna make our lives better. We're the ones that we've been waiting We're for. We're the ones we've been waiting for. I'm going to say two sentences and I think what Ruby says is so important and there is movement happening. Something's happening right now. Coalitions that have never coalesced. People who've never stepped up. Those kids, the Black Lives Matter children are still my big hope. The movements that they've done, the, the Occupy people, the Parkland, Florida kids. Things are happening. People are organizing and that doesn't mean that we're going to win um, in the midterms. But we need to fight as though we'll win in the midterms. And we need to take time to celebrate every single thing that happens that moves us toward revolution. I really think that's important. It's ritual, it's prayer, it's, we got to do that. We got to celebrate, we got to go, hey, look at that. So but we can keep building that muscle. Let me just say something. I, I agree with Jackie that we have to celebrate every victory and that there is activity going on. But there's a difference between an event, a series of discordant events, and a coordinated movement. Yeah, that's and right. one of the things that society, that the guardians have done is that they keep us moving from one event and one issue to the next. And they're exhausting us. And we haven't figured out a way how to consolidate our power to have a common vision and a common mission. Yep. During the Southern Freedom Movement, this was a difference. We had the empire on the run, trying to catch up with us from one movement, one thing to the next. And they were reactionary. And the minute you, sh and the minute, but, they, but we are reactionary today. Our events are reactionary events. And not only are they reactionary events, they're balkanized events. Hmm. We, when we look at state-sanctioned murder, we think of it as something that happens in a state locality, when in fact, yes, it happens there, but it's a national crime. That's right. And a spiritual aberration. And so that we must begin to ask ourselves on this part of the journey, what is our common vision? And how do we move from being reactionary to being transcendental people? Beautiful. Transcendental people. Beautiful. How is, I believe that if we destabilize, if we Donald Trump's reign, we will stabilize Republicans and we will create fertile ground in the valley for change. And if we destabilize Donald Trump's range, reign, we will deal with immigration, we will deal with uh, privatization of public schooling, we will begin to change the very heart and nature of the society. But running from one event to the next, 
just would make all of us exhausted and the empire would still be calling the shots. Amen. And my sister with her last question. Hello. Um, hi. Could you talk a little louder? Put, put the I'm mic sure. up a little bit more towards your mouth, love. There we go. Okay. Hi. Uh, I want to I say that uh, change starts with truth. Truth starts with children. Our institutions have eradicated everybody's truth. They only write their history that serves the few. The children are taught the wrong history. Everything else is eliminated. That's where the brainwashing starts, such as you're white. White is not a human skin color. White is a corporate color that was done to classify people and turn everyone against everyone. Irish, when the Irish first arrived here, they were not considered white. Right. That's number one. On and on and on. So truth for change has to start with the children. Now, how do you do that? With this educational system, they're not even including all that information. They're taking out everybody's input into the building and the input that every culture has had to improve society. One of those things, uh, I'll give an example. The heart surgeon who first performed the first successful heart surgery was an African. We have to change all of that. It's misinformation and it starts with the children. That's all I want to say. Great. Well, let me just respond to this whole thing about white. I agree with you that white is a social construction and it will no longer exist when white people stop saying white shouldn't exist but enjoy the benefits and the privileges and the, right, and the rights of whiteness. I think that as long as it doesn't matter that we say that white isn't a color when we enjoy the benefits and the rights of being white. And so that when people can stop getting bank loans, when they stop getting all of the perks of whiteness, then we will no longer have white as an existent reality. And we have to stop making them rich. Stop making what? Them rich? Making them rich. We're using all our money. We're enriching them, and they're using that money to oppress everyone. I want to say something about your education point. Um, like, stay still commercial to stay tuned to hardingcenter.org is the website for the Vincent and Rosemary Harding Center. Um, stay tuned there and stay tuned to Middle Church for the work that we're going to do this year about education. The on the way to our Freedom School, finally, where, where, you know, Ruby was, this is the work of her generation of the Southern Freedom Movement is not only did kids get on the bus and go south, but when they got south, they created learning centers for children to learn their own history and to learn their own stories. And their mamas came and their grandmamas came. And that's the kind of vision we're having here now. So if you want to volunteer to mentor some kids, put your name on one of those green sheets, yay even now, and give it to that guy in the white shirt right there. This guy right here, his name is Paul. Just give it to him. Vicky. And speaking of education, I want to just end by saying that. Wait, wait, just one more, one oh. moment, Vicky. And then go to the mic for me, love, okay? Yeah, Ruby, go ahead. One of the things that I want to say in terms of the Southern Freedom Movement, I think that for white America, it was one of the most transcendental moments of its history. The young folk who, and the older folk who participated in the Southern Freedom Movement 
came not as missionaries, came not as conquerors, right. but came to learn from ordinary people like Fannie Lou Hamer and to participate in a new way of being and seeing in the world. Right. And so this is the model that we must, that it is that history where we find hope in the possibility of each of us becoming more transcendental in our, in our, and so I think that another thing that I think, speaking of educating people, the Southern Freedom Movement, the importance has never been really stated. For white women to show up on the streets of, of the South with black men was to break with the culture that contained white women. It was to break with the culture of the cult around white womanhood. It was to assert the rights of white women to keep company with anyone that they wanted to keep. It was to break rank with their husbands. It was to break rank with their brothers. For black men to show up on the streets of America with white women was to totally uh, break with the culture that lynched black men who were in close proximity with white women. Don't you understand the culture yeah. shifts that were going on in that transcendental movement? And historians don't understand it and they don't talk about it. For a black woman to be in a freedom house with the white man and she was not his concubine and he was not forcing her to be his mistress, but they were companions and partners in this great vision was a transcendental moment. And so that, we, for, so that we've got to educate ourselves on, on the meaning of what happened in the Southern Freedom Movement. It was more than a civil rights movement. It destabilized one of the strongest empires since the 1600s in this society. And it did it, and people, black and white and brown people came together, young and old people came together, and we did it without firing a shot. Thank you, Ruby. Um, just, just a recommendation on the, on the history question. A book that I discovered recently, um, and, and I recommend it, um, I bought it, and it's fantastic. Lies My Teacher Told Me. Oh, yes. And yeah. it's about how we don't actually teach history in this country, and we haven't for decades. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, it's a guy who, who, who went back and did the research, Lies My Teacher Told Me. It's a fabulous book. It's only about $9.99 on Amazon. Can, oh. Look, are you okay? She's okay. She dropped the mic. Go. Oh. She dropped the mic. Symbolically, she dropped the mic, y'all. So, so friends, I want to invite you again to go to hardingcenter.org. There's a contact page there. I'd like you to, if you want to stay in touch with the work that we're doing, you of course are in touch with the work Middle's doing, but if you want to stay in touch with the work Ruby and I are doing together, please go to hardingcenter.org and put your name there. Yeah. And we want to put resources there. The, the, um, we now have a page of resources about what's happening at the border. If you have books like Vicki just told us, things that you think we need to read, look at, see, share, put that on the contact list so we can educate each other and let each other know what's happening and how to read it. What film should we watch? What book should we read? Which article should we read? Who's got the music for the movement? All right? We're going to stop because there's a funeral in here in a little while. Can you lead us in a song before we leave? Can I lead us in a song? Oh, yeah. You know. No movement is, is complete so without song. Hardingcenter.org is the website. Okay? 
H-A-R-D-I-N-G. Think Vincent Harding, historian, King Aid, Vincent and Rosemary Harding, but hardingcenter.org is the website. You might, get a, you might get a Canadian bookstore first, but we're second. So hardingcenter.org, okay? Um, I think we should sing, Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around. And I think Allison has to come help me. Come out there, Allison. Come on. You guys, thank you so much. Don't, don't, don't clap and leave yet. We're going to sing. But I just want to say thank you for coming. Thank, thank you for you so caring. Much for coming. Thank you so much, Ruby, for everything you've imparted. Come up here so we don't leave Ruby by herself. We're going to sing Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, and that's our benediction. HardingCenter.org. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I'm gonna keep on walking, keep on talking, marching up to freedom. Ain't gonna let nobody, ain't gonna let nobody turn me Benediction? Yes. You sure? It's okay? I know when we gather like this, we come from different faiths and sometimes no faith. So, amen? So, however you think about the, the power, the love power, the transcendental, transformational power, universe, love, God, Buddha, however you name that light, be bathed in it. Take a deep drink of it. Feast heartily upon it, ingest it, absorb it, move with it, let it move you out the doors, in the streets, believing that we have what we need together to do what we need to do together. All of us got gifts, and the world needs them. We love you. Thanks. We love Thank you. you. We love you. We love you.